Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But also, please allow me to introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. How are you, Matthew? I'm well, thanks, Liam. Excellent. How's your back healing up? I know you mentioned last time there was a bit of pain there. Uh, it's actually fine. I started jogging a week ago. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to just stretch out a lot and uh, make sure it doesn't happen again. Rock on. Well, yeah, let's let's uh, pray for a happy, healthy um, back situation. I know I've got to get back into some exercises as well that I've been putting off. But speaking of soldiering on, uh, a terrible pun. I'd like to introduce our two guests now. We have First Lieutenant Mark Bashaw and Sonia Anderson. Hello. Hello, Hello William, Matthew. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you both for joining us today. Um, this is, uh, you know, we've we, kind of named this topic, but you know, what we really wanted was to, uh, to get people in the room who have done extraordinary things during what has been a difficult time for a lot of people. And uh, I think that a lot of people have, have sort of come to grips with the difficulty, uh, difficulties, uh, many difficulties of, of, of situations um, without necessarily knowing what they can do. Um, and, and, you know, of course, what you can do depends on who you are, where you are, you know, what your circumstances are. But I think it's good for people to hear the stories of other people who have done something uh, within their sphere of influence. Um, and I, I don't know Sonia's story well, but uh, but Liam does. Uh, but I'm going to start um, by asking uh, both of you a question. Um, actually, you know, yeah, this actually the first question I'm going to aim this one uh, at Mark, actually. Um, what is the United States of America? The United States of America is is our country uh, founded by we the people built upon the Constitution and the values we hold dear and those founding documents and the founding people and the people that have come before us to serve to ensure those rights of the people for the people by the people. Okay, you said people a lot and, and you said Constitution, which is like a protocol for how to deal with the conflicts uh, to, to create a formation of a society uh, that can work together balanced and, and where people can be themselves and, and, uh, and be part of a, a cohesive group. Uh, it feels like we're in um, a moment where there's a, a, a tension between um, people whose answer to that question might be, it's the people with the constitutional protocol and, uh, and the government which has this constraining document and and these seem to be sort of it, it, it's different perspectives and perhaps they're all part of reality but uh but you know the the people and the and the the protocols were always the way that i saw it also but it feels like that that's that's part of the situation but i'm gonna um and and maybe we'll we'll come back to this um but what does citizenship mean to you then citizenship is a a individual that has 
taken a citizen uh, to the country in which uh, they're responsible for carrying out and ensuring the government in which uh, represents them is properly representing them and if not has the responsibility to ensure uh, that they make their voice known and speak up and stand up and rise up uh, for when that time comes to where that government no longer represents them. And so they have in my opinion, country. So they have both respect for and uh, a responsibility to the protocol. I would I would say so if we want to put it that way. Under that definition, how many citizens are there of the United States of America? Roughly around three hundred eighty million, and obviously you have to factor in the adults and and the children in that scenario. I think it's I think it's uh, maybe closer to three hundred fifty million, but. I actually, I actually wonder how big it really is because if, um, you know, maybe this is the question at hand is uh, how many of those people uh, have a commitment toward the protocol? Uh, it, it's a difficult question to answer because you can't answer it for anyone else, but it, it, it certainly doesn't always seem like all of the people um, are people who are committed to the protocol. There are people who want it changed and, um, and it feels like uh, this moment may have something to do with that, even though it hasn't been spoken out loud. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd like for you to tell us our story. Uh, tell us your story. Um, so uh, how long ago did you you joined the Air Force? I, I know you as somebody from the Army, but uh, you started your military career in the Air Force? Yeah, that's correct. So I started my military career uh, service to our nation in uh, January of 2006, active duty, uh, went directly uh, into the Air Force, enlisted, and I served in various civil engineering squadrons around the world. Um, my specialties, uh, insect-borne disease, uh, pest management type protocols, uh, things like that. So at that time, I was working base infrastructure of these various different Air Force bases, ensuring the planes got off the ground. Uh, the bird aircraft strike program was a big program we were entwined into uh, to ensure we could mitigate some of those hazards and some of those risks to our pilots. And then uh, later, later on, about uh, September 2019, I did a direct commission into the Army Medical Services Corps as a preventive medicine officer, which 67 Charlie is the code for that. And then my specialties, uh, medical entomology or entomologist, and uh, that's 72 Bravo. So that's kind of my background. So when you decided that you wanted to study bugs, had you uh, had you read Heinlein's Starship Troopers? No, <laughs> none of it. I honestly, I I showed up to basic training, and they said, uh, you know, when I signed the dotted line, it was environmental controls. They had it listed down, and then Do I showed know, up. Do you know that story though? Have you seen the I, movie? I have not. No. Okay. Okay. I didn't know if you knew whether well, well, I was asking the question or not because uh, it's it's where the military goes to war with alien bugs. <laughs> nice. I'll have to Relatable. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, uh, Sonia, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Uh, so I'm with the uh, Canadian COVID Care Alliance, and uh, I lead the government relations committee. I've been with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance for uh, just over a year and a half. I joined pretty well right at the beginning. And um, my area of interest has always been trying to get people to engage more with our politicians to help them 
better solve some of the problems that we're seeing. And I think um, that I've just been uh, really interested in trying to encourage more people to recognize that their politicians are just everyday citizens like you and me, and we shouldn't put them up on a pedestal. And instead, we should learn how to um, engage with them as much as possible. So that was one of the things that I really wanted to bring to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer or a scientist, as most of our members are. But uh, I think that, you know, everyday people just like myself can still make a huge difference in, in helping shape uh, what goes on in our country. And Sonia, you went through a number of leadership positions uh, within the CCCA before finally settling, uh, at least for now, in the role you have. You've put on a number of big projects. You've spearheaded the publication of various key policy documents for the CCCA. Can you tell us about how you've gone through that process of identifying what it was you were trying to accomplish and then addressing issues and obstacles as they came up? leading you now to a citizen's hearing and the things you're focusing on as the lead of the government relations committee? Mm -hmm. That was kind of always my uh, area of interest. I, I knew that I always wanted to be involved in, um, in government relations, but it was actually kind of almost the other way around. Uh, the, the CCCA did not want to be doing anything political. They, they felt um, we needed to be uh, as nonpartisan as possible. The CCCA is all about the science. And, and that is still the case today. We are still very nonpartisan. But it, it took a long time for me to convince the leadership uh, that, that being nonpartisan and political, um, you, you can, you can do both at the same time. So, um, it, it actually, when we started having politicians reaching out to us saying, you know, we have constituents that need data and, and need really good, reliable sources and, um, wanted to, uh, um, you know, be able to provide the answers to their constituents that were needed at the time that they were reaching out to us. And that's when the leadership kind of said, well, I guess, I guess, yeah, we do definitely need to be um, engaging our, our politicians across the country. So we work with all levels. We uh, started out actually helping out a local municipal councillor that was having issues with within his own community of vaccine mandates. And so, um, you know, we got together a group of our scientists and our lawyers and uh, um, we, you know, put together the information packages that he needed to be able to to fight that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and prior to that, we have um, just over the course of the last year, uh, again, because we were so grassroots, it, it's kind of when you start out with a lot of these um, organizations. It's who's got what different kinds of skill sets. And so I was actually the chair of the communications, the external communications committee for a while, because you know, I've done some graphics design things and websites and, you know, a few things like that. And it's kind of whatever skill sets you can bring to it is, is what happens in these grassroots organizations. And, and then we just started realizing from the emails that we were receiving from Canadians across the country, what sort of resources they needed. We just took it upon ourselves to develop exactly what they were telling us they needed. And just quickly before I let Matthew jump back in, um, uh, Lieutenant Bashaw gave a wonderful description of what the United States is, what it means to be a citizen, and alluded to 
the Constitution of the United States, which is a remarkable document. Now, in Canada, we're another nation in the Western world, supposedly a, a, a liberal democracy, however you want to describe it in that sense. We, too, have a constitution. We, too, are citizens of our nation. What does it mean to be a Canadian? What does it mean to be a citizen in Canada? And are there any obvious differences or similarities between Canada and the United States in this context? Yeah, I would say huge differences. Actually, it, I mean, it, it's very impressive to, you know, when, when Mark starts talking about, and he knows exactly what that means, but to a Canadian, it's a very different um, feeling altogether. If you were to just, you know, approach any Canadian on the street and ask them, what does it mean to be Canadian? They would not quote the constitution and they would not say we, the people have these and these rights. Um, I, we tend to, I think, think of ourselves more as, um, um, you know, we're those nice neighbors to the North and uh, uh, <laughs> America's I, you know, I don't mean to sound hokey, but you know, we all, we see ourselves as, you know, the peacekeepers around the world and, you know, not the type that are going to, stir up uh you know things but i actually think um i think the last two years have taught us that we we can't afford to you know to be that way um you know there's there's nothing wrong with that but um i know when i was in high school and uh, i did a couple of trips uh down to the states and it was very eye-opening to go to school for the day and see you know everybody stand up doing the pledge of allegiance and we have nothing like that here in canada and not def definitely not the same sense of patriotism i think as as what americans have and i think that's a real shame so um and we certainly don't have a sense of the constitution and 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 you know our constitutional history which is a lot younger and much more recent than than the U.S. Constitution, but uh, I aim to change that, and and it'll start with myself needing to educate myself. Uh, so I can tell you a little bit later on about a new initiative that I'm I'm part of here in Canada, and uh, and and I'm telling you I'm going to have to be the first one to sign up for it to get a really good schooling in our in our Constitution and our history and citizenship. And just to really emphasize how young Canada's constitution and our current set of rights and freedoms is, we know one of the authors of the, the 1982 constitution uh, amendment that introduced the Charter of Rights and Freedoms personally. He's still kicking. So that's how young our country is uh, compared yeah. to uh, to yours. <laughs> if I understand, he, he's not happy. No, he's not. And he's taking his grievances to the highest court in the land. And he's been a wonderful, uh, we're, we're referring, of course, to the Honorable Brian Peckford, um, who was the former premier of, was it Newfoundland, Sonia? Yeah, Newfoundland. Yes. And he, he is the last living uh, author of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which I believe it was 1982, was introduced into the Canadian Constitution um, under uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, father of current leader Justin. Um, fun piece of information. I want to switch things back to to Mark for a moment. I, um, so as I understand it, you are still a member of the, the U.S. military, but you were the first COVID court martial. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, back in back in November, the DOD came down with a policy, a highly discriminatory policy towards all unvaccinated service members in that they are now required to, at the time to test uh, for COVID-19 with these experimental emergency use authorized testing kits. 
And at that time, I immediately brought this, this concern I had, not only is it unlawful to, to leadership, but I also brought up the fact that it was discriminatory to leadership. And um, when I realized that wasn't having an effect, it was almost falling on deaf ears. That's when I started formal documentation to kind of push up these, these complaints to get a redress. Uh, to get some sort of response to 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 notify them that hey by the way this is an unlawful practice based on United States federal statutes in which they just ignored it and I had a duty to perform on base on site with my soldiers and so I chose to show up to to perform my duties without being masked and without being tested with these experimental emergency use products and and without being vaccinated frankly out of curiosity, what proportion of uh, U.S. servicemen and women uh, do you think agree with the policies as they are being uh, as they're being performed, uh, and and how many like you disagree with them? Do you think? I would say majority of people disagree with the the mandates that were pushed down only because uh, the fact the vaccination rates. Uh, weren't immediate. So when they came out with this back in, when they came out with this quote unquote vaccination back in late December of 2020, you really had uh, not too many adopters of that of that protocol. And so once the mandate hit, a lot of individuals were kind of forced and backed into a corner or coerced into a corner to receive it. So majority of people I don't believe actually wanted it. And then there's uh, data out there that there's close to 300,000 service members that aren't quote unquote up to date or, or fully vaccinated based on the definitions that they come out with within the DD, DOD and the, the CDC. And, uh, you know, I'm going to show my screen for just a moment. I wasn't planning on doing this, but uh, I think I can get it set up quickly. Um, yeah, so uh, what Mark said about uh, not everybody was getting vaccinated as quickly. Um, we, we can see this in the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database. And this is just one of the several uh, ICD-10 codes for myocarditis. There are different forms of myocarditis. Um, but what you can see pretty clearly on a month-by-month -month basis, monthly cases, monthly ambulatory reports is that um, that uh, upon 2020, 2020 was not an up year with myocarditis, um, but immediately through the first three months of the vaccine campaign, uh, cases were going up and then they kind of fell down again, but they went up toward August, right? I mean, and, and they're all, you know, none of them are below baseline, but, but uh, you know, roll out and then toward August. And uh, Mark, uh, tell us what happened in August. Yeah, so in August, the Secretary of Defense came out with a memo uh, mandating all service members to receive or to receive the FDA fully uh, approved um, and licensed COVID-19, uh, quote unquote, uh, vaccination, mRNA injection. Um, but we know now that uh, actually, as, as far as to date, that there's still no uh, available FDA approved and licensed product, even for the general public, which is an important note to make, um, that these products aren't available. And so what the public and what the military are getting are these experimental emergency use authorized injections. And majority of people are just unaware. They're, they're unaware that those come with certain statutes like liability protections for the United States government with these products. And um, the individuals for service members, the, the individual right to accept or refuse these products. 
And that's one of the reasons why I, I was bringing up these concerns, not only as a medical officer, I was bringing up the concerns about the VAERS data, which is the vaccine adverse uh, event reporting system with all the deaths in there, um, but also with these, these discriminatory and targeted uh, testing protocols, which are based on an experimental emergency use authorized product. And so it's important for people to understand these statutes. And I really want to stress this. And for people to really go, don't listen to me, go do your own research, look into these statutes. And one specifically is USC, Title 42, USC 247 D-6D. What this is, this is the targeted liability protections for the government, for the manufacturers of these products in the fact that they're not going to be held liable for death, for physical harm, if somebody if somebody uh, receives this from participating in these products. Okay, so so you were brought up for court martial at some point uh, about three months ago. That's correct. Back in April uh, April twenty eighth and 29th was the court martial. Okay, explain the charge and then um, tell us uh, tell us what the judge did in that case. Yeah, so I was charged with not participating in the experimental emergency use authorized testing and masking uh, because, like I said, of the discriminatory uh, orders that were pushed down for the unvaccinated. The judge in the in the specifically in the case, obviously, um, I wasn't hiding the fact that I showed up to work without these. In fact, I was trying to go through the chain of command to redress my concerns to no avail. And so he found me guilty. Um, and, and then he sentenced me to no additional punishment beyond the conviction. And then he did one further and recommended the commanding general to drop the entire conviction altogether, in which the commanding general upheld the conviction and then followed through with, a, with an initiation of elimination from service based on this conviction. Okay, so, so in other words... Um... Nobody is really saying that you are a man of bad behavior, uh, but simply that you did not follow um, uh, these two things, um, testing and masking. And I'm, I'm going to reframe this for a moment. Um, testing and masking. If you don't follow along with this experimental medical campaign, then you have to um, to use these masks, which which there's debatable evidence over, but I would say no no serious evidence um, that they that they do much of anything, uh, and and get tested, and you know it, I mean you know I, I don't know if the military asks you to get tested frequently for many things, but I this would seem to be the only one that's this sort of frequent. This is this is very close to this line of what feels to me like taxation without representation. Right. It's a taxation on your time and your energy and your resources as like a punishment for not going along with someone else's proposed policy, which is not ordinarily part of your duty. Your job uh, has nothing to do with the Constitution and would seem to have nothing to do uh, with the military. Um, and, and I know that there are those people who are going to... Um, who are going to make the argument that, look, this is something that has to be done because code was such a big deal, right? Um, but of course, the military is, is made up of people who are largely uh, 18 to, uh, you know, 35 years old. Uh, you know, the, after the age of 35, you mostly get your leadership and, and, and officers 
Um, but I want to point out uh, a couple of things uh, and, and tell me, I, I, I can't remember the second number, but you can tell me how close I am, perhaps, um, since uh, you and I looked at uh, a lot of the same queries from the DMED. Um, there were, I believe, 81,000 cases of COVID in the U.S. military in 2020. And I can't remember the, the 2021 number, but it was around 150,000. Is that correct? So actually, I just, uh, so if we're taking pre- pre quote unquote glitch or post quote unquote glitch. Uh, those are two different numbers, obviously, and they still haven't answered for that uh, debacle. Uh, but I can say sitting here today that you're correct. 2020 was around 80,000. Uh, 2021 with the vaccine rollout was, was higher, closer to 90,000. And then I just recently pulled the numbers for 2022, the first five months of 2022, and we're already sitting close to 80,000. I didn't know the 2022 numbers. Thank you. Um, I think the 2021, uh, when I ran them, were uh, yeah getting up to 100,000, but that was like only through uh, maybe the first like eight and a half months of the year or something like that. I, I feel like it was uh, I I feel like it was headed toward a, maybe I imputed 152,000, but one way or another, um, there were more cases, and even even per month, even if we like start things at the beginning of of, of April, there were more cases in 2021, and it sounds like in 2022 now. Per month uh, than there were in 2021. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna point something else out. We're told that you know first we were told okay th this is gonna prevent like infection transmission all that kind of stuff. Then we were told no what, what it prevents is severity. And I don't know if this is something that uh, other people in the military are talking about. But uh, what I did is I took some of the queries that uh, that you had run, and um, and there were two different queries. One was um, you know COVID cases. And the other one, and I guess I had that only through October of 2021, and the other one was hospitalization. And uh, I divided one by the other to get hospitalization rates per case. And here we can see again that curve where it goes up and up and up throughout 2021, heading toward the month of mandates. So it, it doesn't seem to be, at least within the, the age groups, um, you know, most of the U.S. servicemen, as I said, um, go, for, you know, green, or orange, red, blue, uh, you know, uh, not a whole lot of people above the age of 40. But um, even though, you know, for every one of these groups, we see more hospitalizations per case. And as you said, we're seeing more cases also. So it doesn't seem like the vaccines have done the military much good. So. Yeah, the the argument uh, that there is some sort of a crisis, first of all, in 2020, um, uh, as far as I saw in, in the DMED, 2020 was a, a low year for health problems in the military. In fact, I could not find a year with fewer health problems. It does not look like a crisis year. And then things didn't get better upon vaccination. And so, you know, when I, when I think about this, I, I just come back to, okay, well, if there's not some sort of very obvious, very compelling argument then it's hard not to see this as taxation without representation. Um, but but the other side of this, um, you know, surely there are people around you who see differently than you do, who have a different point of view. What would be what, what do you feel is their strongest argument? Like if you were to sit down with uh, with one of your friends who sees this differently than you do, um, what is the what is the thing that they say that you think is the most compelling part of their position? Well, compelling, that's a, that's, that's an interesting term. I don't think any of it's compelling, but uh, their biggest, their biggest thing is variance. 
oh, well, that's because there's new variants. And, and that's the way they explain away these increased in cases and, and whatever else. It's, oh, the, the vaccine's not, initially it was effective, but a new variant came along. And then now it's not as effective against the new variant. And we're kind of seeing that across the board in the mainstream and, and it dips into the military as well. And I just, I just go back to, okay, we're using an experimental emergency use authorized test, PCR test, and a rapid antigen test to see, initially see the first case. The first case of COVID-19 in the United States was, was from a PCR test. And these PCR tests don't even have FDA approved and licensed. Uh, they're not even FDA approved and licensed. So again, we're, we're talking about something that's from a test that was never made to never invented to diagnose disease but here we are using data from these these testing and then on top of that we're weaponizing the test against the unvaccinated service members in in the in what in the hopes that they they feel enough pressure to to take the vaccine to take the EUA vaccine so so let's suppose that these vaccines turn out to have um, long-term side effects. And let's and uh, currently, uh, if I understand correctly, a little bit over 90% of the U.S. military forces have been vaccinated. Uh, if these do have long-term side effects, if they cripple people who are meant to protect the country, uh, that, would seem to, that would seem to change the entire world geopolitical landscape. It seems like that's something that hasn't been part of the conversation. I haven't heard anyone address it. Has there been any kind of a debate that we could look to about that? Like we have this one big systemic risk, right? And it would change the face of everything. It would change the face of the United States and the entire world. And, and I agree with your point. And that's kind of the thing that's baffling me is why aren't we talking about this? It's the most obvious thing on on you know, in our faces, we're taking these products, forcing them down service members, healthy service members' throats, and and we're seeing issues like you pointed out in the data. And so, to me, to me, that so if, if I can interrupt, so you're saying that there's not one single conversation about this that is, you know, that's public, like you know, a general talking with a senator or 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 people in Congress having this conversation. Nobody has brought up the point. This is a systemic risk to the entire military. If these things turn out to be bad, then right. then that's that's the end of the game. Right. You're absolutely or, right. Or, or at yeah. least it could change the game. And 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 who knows what that would cause on a global level. Right. It's why am I having to sit here and give an interview and inform the public about this? is because I went through every official channel to bring these concerns about, hey, it's all risk, it's no benefit up through the chain of command only to get court-martialed and then eventually probably forced out of service. So no, nobody is actually taking this serious and bringing this to the table. We have thousands of service members that have inquiries in with congressional members. And why don't we hear them talking about it? If yeah, there's something there's something very familiar. Uh, Isania, we at the citizens hearing heard from two uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces. And I just wanted to share my screen uh, quickly here just to show this. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, yeah, the same thing. Yeah. In addition to 
everything that's just been described about potentially if there are negative health effects, which we know there are some, potentially many, there's the physical crippling of uh, the armed forces of the most powerful military in the world. But in the context of, of Canada, we also heard about uh, the de-incentivizing of enrollment into the or or conscription into uh, what's the correct word? Uh, and in any case, recruiting the next generation of armed forces members. Uh, we heard from uh, uh, let's see, Andrew McGillivray and uh, what's the Harold Ristow that oftentimes it's the family members uh, of military families uh, who are actively serving who wind up becoming the next generation and those are the ones now being discouraged from joining up what can you tell us about what we heard from these two um service members and and some of the issues that are either the same or different that we're seeing in the canadian armed forces yeah well uh i re i remember andrew mcgillivray's um commentary and he's with the um the armed forces uh in in the army uh and he specifically was talking about um, and, and I mean, these are just Canadian stats, but he estimates that there's about $800 million that the government is willing to throw down the drain from the number of uh, military personnel that are saying we're not taking these uh, mandates and, and they're planning to leave the military. Now he, he's looking at, you know, the cost to train all of them and the amount of money that has already been invested in, in each of these, uh, military uh, personnel's careers and for what? Uh, and then um, the Padre uh, Risto was talking about um, the psychological impacts of mandating people to do something that they um, don't wanna be doing. He said, you know, that that's, it's hard enough when you're faced with these types of challenges, uh, you know, uh, on the battlefield, let's say, but, you know, to have your own country doing this against you is just, uh, it, it's crazy. So um, definitely a lot of psychological impact that, that they're seeing as a result of these. And, and uh, exactly what you were saying, that most military do end up coming from, you know, it's families, uh, with, it's, it's within the family. And so who's going to want to serve when, you know, this, this happened to your family members? So... Um, you know, I think military personnel all around the world are uh, being impacted by this. And, and certainly that's affecting, you know, the security of, of nations around the world. And people aren't people are talking about that. And also something interesting was uh, the notion that this kind of compromising of one's own spiritual mm -hmm. integrity uh, creates mercenaries out of soldiers, because if you're forced to dismantle your own belief system in order to continue serving then then you wind up potentially with soldiers who wind up in battlefield situations where that same moral compass that existed prior it was dismantled for this mandate and now how are they going to behave if they're deployed to ukraine let's say so i thought that was very interesting to think about as well and very concerning I'm currently trying to to find the numbers and I can't find them. Um, one of the things that uh, I had found in my research was that the military had held the U.S. military had held off on releasing mortality data uh, for longer than usual, and finally, I think last month uh, released it. And there's a clear uptick in uh, deaths due to illness. Um, it, it's it's you know these numbers. Um, there might be. Uh, 
you know, you know, people in the military are relatively healthy. So you only see a hundred something per year, but it seemed like uh, over the last two years that the number had gone up maybe 60 or 70%, if I recall correctly. Um, so there, there's, you know, debate about what this, it, it, it's not, it's, it's, yeah, I, I love, I'm glad you brought that up, Liam, um, this sort of psychological conversation about, you know, if you are willing to give up your belief system to a chain of command that is telling you to do something, which the data suggests no real positive benefit um, or, or marginal positive benefit, you know, you know, maybe, maybe somebody else's perception is different than mine, but it's certainly not some sort of overwhelming slam dunk case. And, um, and, and suddenly uh, you are being pressured you know, very strongly. Um, and we've seen an uptick in ambulatory reports of uh, suicide attempts. And one thing I would wanna say for everyone out there is uh, if things seem difficult, uh, reach out for the people that you can bond with, reach out for the people who have shown the strength to stand up as citizens. And that's what this conversation is. Um, uh, Mark and Sonia are two people who have within their places done the things that they knew how to do uh, or to do within their stations. And, uh, and I, I know that Mark has followed uh, sort of a series of steps, uh, you know, one after another. What is it that I can do now? I can file this report. What is it I can do now? I can um, stop wearing the masks and stop getting the testing. What is it that I can do now? Uh, and Mark, if you are um, pushed out of the military uh, by what I would consider uh, illegal action, but but yeah, it's a different part of the conversation. Suppose that you're pushed out of the military, and at some point um, the political tides change, and it was determined that that was uh, an inappropriate action by the U.S. military. Would it be possible for you to be reinstated? Is there any barrier to that currently? No, I mean, no. I think it would be an absolute possibility. It's just. Uh, that's, I think that's a question on a lot of service members' mind is, would you want to? Would you want to come back in if that were the case? And a lot of service members I know, they, they are seriously uh, frustrated with the entire situation, and I don't know that they would come back. And that's, that's the unfortunate part is all these strong individuals who really stood up for what's right and, um, you know, brought the concerns up to their chain of command and, and just got absolutely hammered and battered, um, you, you know, used and abused. I, I don't know if a lot of them would come back, uh, but certainly that would be, I would think, a possibility given, given the proper, proper leadership. Okay, given the proper leadership, and there it is right there. These are people who believe in, uh, in the protocol, the Constitution, and they uh, they believe in uh, doing a job to protect the protocol and the Constitution and the people with it. Um, and if there are leadership change. So what, what this means is that ultimately the degree to which the Constitution is being followed seems to rest on leadership. And that seems to be the opposite of what the protocol intended. It seemed to be that the protocol intended for us not to depend on leadership for the protocol to function. But there is there's a, there's a reality there. You know, um, you, you can't expect um, there to be no, um, you know, human fallibility in the process. But this seems to be at such a, a large level that it is it's almost as if there is a political civil war at the very top of all this. 
So I, I will say that's why um, we do have those checks and balances. That's why I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States. I didn't take an oath to the President of the United States. I or took an oath party. to those values of, of what's written in there, to those principles. And if I see that something's wrong, I have a moral obligation. I have a duty to bring that up to leadership to rectify the situation. And I understood the risks that were associated with doing with what I was going to do and what I did do. Uh, however, it was my duty. It's literally codified in the doctrine of being a military officer. It's ethical orders. Either the orders are lawful or they're not. And if they're not lawful, you have a duty to disobey those orders and push up your concerns so leadership can understand the concerns and work with you and not against you. But we see that the latter is happening. So when when you're part of the chain of command and you see the person above you um, following uh, an unlawful order and then passing down that unlawful order to the people underneath them, um, that like, I, I don't, I don't understand, uh, what, uh, the process is for that. Right. I, I you know, you, you can say, um, uh, you can disobey that, uh, lawful order, that unlawful order, excuse me. Um, but that means that there's a chain of command above you where it seems like every step in the way, everyone there has been participating in an unlawful order. Right, correct. And so the process, you talked about the process and the process for service members to bring up these concerns if it's falling on deaf ears is Article 138 UCMJ, which is a tool for the service member to bring up a complaint in an official format, official document, push it to their first commander in their chain of command to, to notify the commander, hey, these are the issues. These are, these are the unlawful orders, why they're unlawful based upon laws, statutes, the constitution, and get that, get that commander to respond to that. And if that doesn't work, if there's no redress upon that action, then it goes to the next hire. And then it's that next hire, which we call the, the GCMCA, which is basically the commanding general of that command to, to view and, and review the documentation and then make the proper, the proper choice based upon the evidence. But the problem is this situation is so highly politicized. They've turned the entire military apparatus into a political experiment that that majority of people are too afraid to, to work with you instead of against you. It's it's almost easier for them to try to bury somebody in the ground than it is to take their concerns up the chain of command to work together as a team. And that's what I've always been taught, to work as a team together. We're one as a team. And if we have issues, we need to face to face, go to the person you're having an issue with. If that doesn't work, utilize the chain of command. And the political aspect of this is fascinating because at the end, correct me if I'm wrong, the president is the chief commanding officer of the military. Is that not correct? That, that's correct. Commander in chief. Commander in chief. And at the same time, they're essentially the most politicized figure uh, by definition in today's culture. And it makes me think you might be onto something. I, I, uh, I find it very fascinating. You're speaking of a trend uh, or, or Matthew brought up the, the, the prospect of a change in leadership, bringing about a rehiring of all of these military uh, service people who have been let go for this specific issue. And that is what uh, likely candidate Donald Trump uh, has said he will do. And it's interesting because my assumption is to go, that's great. Whether or not you like President Trump, 
this seems like an action that would be beneficial in this context. But perhaps you're right. Perhaps even this has become so politicized that that the simple act, once again, that it is Donald Trump saying it, perhaps would turn some folks off from returning or the complete opposite. Is it possible that individuals who may not want to come back uh, should it be another four years of the Biden administration, for example, would they come back because it was this particular president, Trump, who's inviting them back? Is there anything to that? I mean, there might be something to that, but that's that's an individual decision for the in, uh, for every individual to make and based on their perceptions, their opinions and their their whether they agree or not. But um, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's 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 not political. Like the thing I love about being in the military is not political. It was never political. It was about you. You carry out the duties that are assigned to you as long as they're lawful. Right. And so you evaluate it. It's not about left. It's not about right. And that's what I love about it. Uh, but unfortunately, it's 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 taken a turn for the worse where I'm dealing with situations that I've never thought would even be possible. Like, for example, I'm getting emails about about the pronouns should be assigned on my signature block when when my service, my brothers and sisters in uniform are being targeted with an experimental uh, injection. And, and there's death and there's injury associated with that. So I'm like, wait, wait. So we're talking about pronouns for my email, but I'm, I'm bringing up legitimate concerns over here. And that's, that's, that's the sad reality that military members find themselves in right now. Right. We have one thing, which is uh, discrimination only by definition, and another, which is discrimination uh, of someone's entire medical biological autonomy. And, and the one which is statutory is being uh, elevated uh, by the system, whereas the one that is more serious is being uh, treated as, uh, as the trivial. Um, I, you know, I liked what you said. Um, uh, you, know, you, you like the politics being taken out of your moral decisions. Um, is what it's, I, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth or not, but uh, uh, you know, you're somebody who wants to be able to go about your work and then once in a while you have to make a moral decision. Um, it, it, was this a difficult set of decisions for you or, or is, is there any one of these decisions that you've taken that you had to think long and hard about and changed your mind before you made the decision? Or were all of these decisions your first instinct and your first nature? I definitely had to take an open-minded approach and evaluate the situation with all the information I was seeing. And, and from that um, open-minded approach with the logical and, and the rational uh, evidence-based fa evidence facts that I was seeing, I at that point in time, I then got down on my knees. I pray, I, I pray to my God. I glorify, you know, my, my duties to glorify my God and, and honor my oath to the Constitution. So got down on my knees, prayed about it. And uh, one specific situation, I, I showed up to work without a mask and a test. And I knew very well that uh, the risk associated with that, like I said, but, um, you know, based on the information I had and, and what I was doing prior to that, trying to change risk communication strategies to no avail, um, you know, I got, I got down on my knees. I think about these things based on an open-minded perception and always, always open to new information coming in. And then even still open to the fact that I still could be wrong. At the end of the day, I still could be wrong. And, and 
that's something I have to deal with. And, and if, if that's the case, guess what? I'm wrong. I apologize and move on, move out. So you, you were both deliberate uh, in thinking through all the information and you took the step to, to sort of uh, prepare yourself or ask yourself uh, to be in spiritual tune with that decision. And when all of that felt right, then you stepped forward. That's correct. Now, Sonia, I, I want to ask you, because the politicization of everything it, we're seeing in Canada as well, and we're in this, I'll, I'll tell you personally, my entire political worldview has been shattered. One thing I've learned is it seems true liberalism and true conservatism, if we look at it kind of bi-directionally like that, they share a lot of the same fundamental values, perhaps two sides of the same coin. It seems to me what we're seeing now in the context of Canada, the parties have all essentially become one conglomeration of interests that don't represent whatever it is they're intending to represent. Now, in Canada, we have the Conservative Party. We have the Liberal Party. We have the NDP, which is the New Democratic Party. Um, and then uh, the Bloc Québécois, which I believe only represents the province of Quebec. And then we've got smaller parties such as the Green Party and more recently the People's Party of Canada, which is sort of uh, attempted to, it seems, take the place of the Conservative Party. But this is all a mess uh, in short. And I wanted to ask you, what is going on in terms of political uh, movements in Canada in, in that uh, why is it that even the party you would assume would be the one most readily holding on to conservative values of, you know, um, well, what, what I mean, what even are conservative values, but the conservative party itself being completely absent alongside all the other parties that seem to have taken the same line, the liberals in the NDP, for example, essentially literally now being one party. Can you just give us an overview? What's going on in Canada? What's going on with this conservative leadership race coming up? And could you speak a little bit about some individuals who have, in fact, stepped up within these parties um, in elected office? Hmm. Mm. You know, the, you're putting me in a tricky situation because, um, as I've said, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, we aim to be uh, nonpartisan. So um, I'm certainly not uh, promoting one over the other. But it, it is interesting that... Um, uh, I guess over the last few years, there hasn't been as strong a delineation between uh, what what would be considered left and right, which is you know more liberal versus conservative. Um, and it's interesting because I think back to uh, a really interesting um, interview that I saw with Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, of all people, on on Johnny Carson. Uh, and this was back when he was just a governor uh, and not yet uh, elected as, as president. And he talked about how he used to be a Democrat his whole life and had only recently become a Republican. And he said it, it wasn't because uh, well, what he was getting at is that the Democratic Party, as he had seen, it was trying to be too many things to too many people and trying to bring too many different groups all under the tent and and that that's not what he wanted to see and I think that that's what's happened here in Canada where there's been a real blurring of those distinctions over the past few years and so I think that um, if anything I think the COVID crisis has um, perhaps 
maybe gelled the left and right uh, a little bit more than what we had seen in the last couple of years so that uh, people are recognizing, um, for instance, you seem to hear a little bit more from, from people of the the um, conservative persuasion talking much more about uh, freedoms and liberties than what you do, for instance, in in the left. And you didn't hear that a few years ago. So um, you know maybe COVID has uh, has has had that kind of an impact on the political process. Uh, so it's uh, I think changed it. We we have an interesting uh, leadership. Um, race that's going on right now within the conservative party and so you're seeing a little bit of that jockeying and and you know you have some people that are a little bit more moderate and then there's those that uh are are more uh of the conservative persuasion talking more about those liberties and freedoms and citizenship and so we're starting to certainly see um uh, a, a little bit of that even happening just within that one party itself so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the fall and allow me to clarify the, the point you made before the CCCA is not partisan. Um, I've found, in fact, the majority of people in Canada and the United States that I interact with in this particular set of issues, they may have political persuasions, but they're not engaging from that bias primarily. The point being the CCCA, and I, I can speak from personal account, your work has always involved reaching out to every political party at every mm -hmm. level of government from municipal all the way to federal and mm -hmm. not just you but we have colleagues dr byron bridal dr paul alexander uh and a few others who when they were in ontario uh or, or ottawa for the uh the the truckers uh protest there there was uh, a very prominent invitation for a scientific debate um and and that was a non-partisan invitation the the point that you've always tried to get across is this needs to be an entirety of Canada discussion. So I, I, I want to clarify that you're right. This isn't just, this isn't something that you or the CCCA is taking a political stand on. It's trying to work with everyone who has a stake in this, which is every Canadian. Um, and also I just want to bring up to, to bring in our audience a little bit. Dan duo says easy answer. All of them have agreed on the public health measures. Therefore all parties are at the very least accessories after the fact. And it's true, we have seen essentially lockstep uh, uh, actions and uh, statements across political parties in the States and in Canada. Yeah, almost suspiciously so. Um, it, it's frustrating to, to see and to think through that. Um, so, uh, Mark, uh, before you have to go, and, and thank you for your time, uh, before you have to go, I wanted to ask... Um, a couple of questions about uh, the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database, which you and I worked on together. Um, so it, it, at some point, what, what, it's, what we found is, okay, so past data was changed. Uh, data from the years 2016 through 2020, before the introduction of the glitch. Even before that, past data was changed in a way that appears most likely designed to make any numbers that would have gone up during 2021 look less apparent, less extreme. Um, so it, 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 I, I personally, I think that, it, that it's obvious. I think, I think that there's, there's no other good explanation, but I leave that little room of doubt open because I've been surprised before, but, but it's, it's strong enough in my mind that it seems like you know somebody should be very interested in going and finding out who would have changed that data? 
And I don't know if you're able to answer this question. One, you know, what I found out was that there's a company called Unisant that handles the data outside of the military. And to me, that seemed like bad policy idea to begin with, like train somebody in the military to handle that database. It does not seem like uh, a job beyond the capabilities of the people that I've met uh, who were high level, you know, technical specialists in, in the U.S. military. Um, but uh, is there, yeah, what would it mean if someone in the DOD or someone contracting with the DOD, and these may be two separate questions, um, what would it mean if somebody had gone in and altered that database for the purpose of making uh, making the appearance of vaccine harms go away? Would that be treason? Yeah, um, yeah, certainly, certainly along those lines, and and obviously a, a just a blatant national security threat. Now you mentioned the company Unisant, which is the contractor of this, and this is a thirty million dollar contract that the, that their people are essentially funding to get it right, not to get it wrong, not to have glitches, and if there is a glitch, to properly answer for that glitch. But we know there's never been a solid. Uh, response to that. There hasn't even been a chain of custody on the responses that were provided. We don't know who's giving these responses. And normally when there's an issue like this, it goes through uh, official uh, official communication. So we know exactly who's answering for this. But this specific situation, we don't know. And I think the bigger, the bigger issue at hand is not only do I see is it obvious and blatant national security threat, but this company called Unisant, which also has contracts with CMS, DHS, NIH, um, and some of these various different three-letter agencies. And they handle an immense amount of data, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts for this company. And supposedly it's only a company of a total of 90, less than 100 personnel considered a small business. And, and you're right. I mean, if, if somebody's going in there and purposely manipulating this data to push certain agendas or hide certain signals, um, that's obviously, that's we've got serious issues there as, as well. But but nobody's nobody's properly answering or asking, from my my perspective, asking the proper the proper questions in this. Um, and it's disturbing when I drill down and to see all these contracts that this this company, this specific company has and all the data. And where is that data going? Because not only is it the data that you and I are familiar with on DMED, which is scrubbed of all personal information, but Unison also has control of D, uh, its DMSS, which is the, the source um, of the data, which- That's does the data before it's de-identified. Right. And so that does have all of our, my, and my brothers and sisters in uniform, personal information in there. And so if they're not getting DMED right, what are they doing with DMSS? Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Unisand uh, translated from the French is uniting. And and it feels like there there is a, a strange uh, political slant in in creating these companies whose names mean something like the opposite of their role, uh, whether it's that Eco Health Alliance, perhaps, um, uh, but it, it seems to be a bit of a theme with pandemic players, and it's worth paying attention to. Oh, Mark, Centers for Disease Creation and Promulgation—that's a good one. <laughs> 
Uh, well, Mark, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, thank you for, for your work with uh, the Defense Medical Epidemiological Database and everything else that you've done um, and, and, uh, and for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew and Liam and Sonia. So, uh, so nice to meet you. God bless you both. You too. You Take too, care. Mark. And as you can see, everyone, you can follow Mark on True Social at Mark Bashaw. The link will also be in the description. Thank you again, Mark. All right, Sonia, now we've got you alone. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wanted to bring up another um, audience comment. There's two things. First, um, Christy Leibel, um, our own country was subverted back in the 50s and 60s after World War II. We were returned to colony status under the British Empire. They just didn't bother to tell the citizenry, now the serfs. And then the second comment that I thought was very apropos was the following. Also from Dan Duo, people can't have a dis discussion when they don't speak the same language. They can't speak with others because they have different definitions of common words, starting with vaccines. Education is key. And I think both of those together demonstrate we've got a dramatically varied um, population in terms of what they believe to be uh, the truth or the facts based in, you know, we're, we're talking legally, we're talking scientifically, and I think Dan is correct to say the solution to all of that really is education. More broadly, it's just the ability to speak freely. And that, I think, naturally results in a more educated society. So with education being key, that's, I believe, been the core, uh, the premise behind your actions is to educate both, you know, the elected officials, as you mentioned, educate people on how to be an effective citizen in engaging their elected officials. Can you speak to that? How big, uh, how much of a bedrock is education to what you do in this context? Oh, it's, it's huge uh, on, on both of those levels. So, you know, you're looking at both ends of that spectrum, working with uh, elected officials to, um, you know, better understand terminology um, related to this pandemic. Um, it's interesting. I can take you a little bit back uh, before COVID and many, many years ago, when I first moved to the community that I'm in, um, a, a company wanted to buy the remains of what was the biggest uh, brewery in Canada and turn it into an ethanol plant. And we just thought that wasn't a good thing to put right in the middle of a, a thriving community. And um, so we, we fought against them. And it was a, an uphill battle convincing the, um, the local municipal council that this wasn't good for our community we were fortunate we had someone who um, who came up from the States who had been fighting ethanol plants down there. And she taught us several really important key things. Number one, she taught us that companies will always try to make it seem like it's a done deal. And I get a very strong feeling that that's kind of what the government has done. You know, you talked about things happening in lockstep here. Um, where it doesn't matter whether you're talking to someone provincially or municipally or at the federal level, it seems like everybody's got the same messaging. And, and they're trying to convince people that, you know, the safe and effective mantra keeps coming up and, uh, you know, that they have our, our best interests at heart. And, and really, you know, you, you, you don't need to do anything. We're kind of taking, taking care of everything for you. So almost like this uh, very paternalistic approach to, to things. And, um, 
So we, we need to combat that messaging. Uh, but then the other thing that we have to do is, is recognize, and again, this was another thing that, that we learned um, uh, from, from that individual from, from the states, that um, politicians are just everyday citizens, just like you and I. So, you know, back then they weren't experts in, you know, chemical engineering and the ethanol refining process. And it's the same now. Um, you know, how, how many epidemiologists uh, and, and, you know, doctors that, that are versed in vaccinology do you know of that, that are um, elected officials? And the answer is probably next to zero, right? So their, their level of understanding of this is, is next to nothing. So that's why, it, you know, with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, we have hundreds of doctors and scientists and lawyers that had the information that they needed. And what we needed to do was package it into, um, you know, the, the, the type of language that the average everyday citizen could understand, because at the end of the day, that's what our politicians are, you know, before that, uh, you know, what were the uh, expertise of, of our, you know, the people that are in the Ministry of Health or the, you know, the Ministry of Transportation, what did they do before they were doing, doing this job, you know? They weren't vaccinologists or epidemiologists. So I can tell you that, right? You know, if I could interject, even aside from that, um, any government uh, whose whose protocol system depends on the correctness of experts, um, that that automatically then begins to corrupt the system of selecting experts, right? Because suddenly that that's a, an an immense power to becoming an expert. Um, whereas like, for instance, when the U S constitution, I know you're in Canada, but when the U S constitution was written, a lot of these expertises did not exist or, or, or were lowly developed and, and it did not matter. And, mm -hmm. and people didn't die in a pandemic as a result. Right. Um, and, and, and I have, I have grave doubts about, um, the, the level of danger that they tell us now, but that that's, again, that's coming from the mouths of experts, um, that, like automatically that seems like a, a major perceptual shift and, and and perhaps even its own coup of government itself. Well, you know, it's interesting. There were a lot of things that were already in place beforehand. Uh, and people, I think, around the world aren't aware of this, but there were emergency plans in place in pretty well every country. And for, for sure here in, in Canada, at, at the federal, the provincial and the municipal levels, uh, and believe it or not, a lot of the foundation of them came from the World Health Organization more than a decade ago. So we have plans that were put in place to deal with these sorts of things. There are people that are experts in um, emergency management planning. And um, the bottom line is those were just thrown out the window and nobody followed that and nobody referred to those uh, experts and those plans because those plans didn't just... Um, involve the medical community, which I think was a really big problem with this. And it was certainly something that we learned. Um, we had uh, in, in the citizens hearing that we held Dr. Richard Shabas, who is the former chief medical health uh, officer of Ontario for, for a 10 year period. He testified that, um, you know, there were plans in place and they weren't followed and that this wasn't, this should never have been treated as a health emergency. And, and right. that's the problem. We put this in the hands of um, public health officials 
And and what did they do? They don't know anything about the economy or, you know, about uh, infrastructure. And so they just shut everything down. It, you right. Can't, can't flick a switch and turn those things back on. You yeah, know? What, what you said about we had plans in place. Um, I can't remember where I saw this, but I, I think it, it may have been easily Googleable or, or searchable on the internet, um, which is that the US and Canada rated very highly, according to the WHO and, and uh, international agencies on pandemic preparedness, specifically uh, with those plans and the infrastructure that had been put in place to carry out those plans. So it, it since then, um, you know, all, all of the, the actions have been different from what we thought they would be, from what the, you know, the WHO had previously told us that uh, quarantines uh, weren't effective and they didn't do much uh, or, or that they were only effective in, in very specific, you know, niche circumstances. Um, uh, but now we're told the, the, the message that we seem to get, at least through the media and through the governments is um, to the degree that we failed, it's your fault. Right. It, it, it's not the fault of the public health officials who made completely different policies or who shut down uh, the countries. Um, it, it's it's your it's my fault. It's your fault. Well, there's uh, you can go to the Canadian COVID Care Alliance's website and there's a section on there that talks about the uh, emergency plans that were in place. And um, we also talk about how those are the documents that should be referred to as the way out and the way forward out of this. Um, uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, uh, he he speaks his entire YouTube videos that I really strongly encourage people should watch, um, where he talks about all of the different pillars of of this. He was yeah, there you go. He was the one who was in charge of that for Alberta. Uh, back about a decade ago. And, uh, he, you know, he talks about the need to uh, have everybody be a part of it, where you have you bring forward leaders from the business community, from infrastructure, from energy, from all your critical uh, infrastructure. And, and, and medical is one part of it, but it's only one pillar of it, you know, uh, how the need should have been to look at do, do an analysis of what was going on. I mean, they knew fairly early on that the people that were most vulnerable to this were the elderly and the, uh, you know, immunocompromised. So you do things to help protect them and you let everybody else go about living their own lives. We didn't need to crash economies. Um, there, there's just, uh, I mean, it truly, what's gone on in, in the past two years has been, uh, you know, a, a level of almost insanity that has gripped the whole world. Uh, I mean, there, there are almost, uh, there are very few countries in the world that didn't do this, but those that didn't, um, you know, fared much better than, than those that did shut everything down. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a moment in history when shutting down the entire economy turned out to be a good idea. And I'm just, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I no. I, I just don't even remember a time in history when, when, when they ever did that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, and, yeah, inside and, of wartime, right? And war was, that was used as a tool against the enemy, not to one's own populace. And, and, you know, I don't want to say that, that I don't trust um, any form of, public health planning or, or something like that. But when I look back in history, um, I don't see public health planning being at the core of the reasons that we have become a healthier, happier species. Um, what I see is engineering, 
and uh, and the, the engineers have have allowed us to move our waste away better. They've allowed us to bring our water in cleaner. Um, we do have problems uh, that we're still solving within each of those systems. Uh, there are problems, there are poisons that seep in, or we have to figure out what we can and can't use to help grow crops and keep pests away. And, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, a continual rolling challenge. Um, but it feels like, uh, it feels like we have one group with far more power. There isn't like, you know, uh, the public engineering commission that's weighing in on this. And I think people should ask themselves why. And it feels, it feels like the reason, yeah, I, there isn't an offered reason, but it feels like the reason is itself political. Um, but, you know, when the, the moment you think we'll bring everybody to the table, bring the engineers to the table, that almost feels like, okay, bring nobody to the table. Let's just have a government that is a protocol and the rest of us figure this out. And I feel like that would work great. And part of the reason I feel like that would work great is everybody I've met with the Canadian COVID Care Alliance has been awesome. I've learned, you know, from every conversation, I've learned something. Uh, and everybody seems to be... Um, you know, working together and, and doing a good job, like almost like, okay, if this is what the public health system had been, all this would be just fine. And that, that seems to be perhaps the actual pandemic nation after nation you go to, it is the public health officials that have control of everything. There's almost no counterexample in the world. There are a couple of places like Bangladesh, where the public health officials didn't have as much power. And you know what? They weren't suffering much of a pandemic at all. So it, it's, it's just an, an interesting observation. Well, um, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point. Um, one thing that a lot of people have thought is seriously lacking is a really good connection between the scientific community and the political community. Uh, and who who do um, politicians turn to when um, when they need that that type of information? And you know, we just look at what is the public perception behind how these um, vaccines or therapeutics got approved? Most people think that Health Canada. Uh, I can only you know speak to our experience here, but I'm assuming it's probably pretty similar perception in the states and everywhere else around the world. People think that the government has all of these uh, scientists working for them, and they do, and they think that the scientists took these vaccine products and tested them out for themselves to verify what was said by the vaccine companies. But that's not actually what happens. Uh, again, I can't speak to other countries, but here in Canada, we have such a shortage and an underfunding issue that a huge amount of the funding of our government scientists, it, it's funded by, by Big Pharma. Let that sink in for a minute. So the people that are paying a big portion of the funding for our government scientists, it's, it's big pharma. Yeah. And, and let's be clear about that. Um, yeah. I, can't I very strongly encourage you to watch. We had some very interesting testimony at the Canadian, um, at our citizens hearing. 
Um, this is uh, what, what's up on the screen here now is a lawyer who specializes in regulatory approval processes and has worked uh, extensively with um, fighting things, uh, products uh, with Health Canada and the regulatory process. His name is Sean Buckley. Uh, his testimony was absolutely shocking. I, I encourage everybody to watch it. Um, the Citizens Hearing website is citizenshearing.ca. Um, currently, it shows the three full days of testimonies, but I'm hoping by the end of this week, um, we're going to have it updated where each individual testimonial is broken down into its own video. And so each video will be approximately 10 to 15 minutes long. Some are a little bit longer if they had more detail. But Sean uh, Buckley presented, um, we had uh, Deanna McLeod, I would recommend watching hers, Maria Gucci, all three of those talked specifically about the regulatory process and, um, you know, regulatory capture and, um, you know, so who who's behind the approval processes and, and how did these particular products make it through the the approval process here in Canada and around the world. I think people need to do a lot more research than what they have been doing. And, um, you know, hopefully we've made it a little bit easier by following these testimonials, but I think people will be quite shocked to find out that here's what you think the reality is for how they got approved. And then listen to the, the people in the Canadian COVID care Alliance. We, we're independent. We have no funding um, from from you know any organizations or groups like that. We're funded by citizens, people like you and me, and so we have uh, you know nothing to gain one way or the other from from uh, uh, approving or not approving things. Our scientists say what they see, and some of them worked for uh, Health Canada and tell you exactly the way it works. And I would also encourage some very interesting testimony just came out this past week. Um, there have been a couple of uh, cases, uh, the travel mandate case, um, specifically Carl Harrison and Sean Rickard uh, are in the process of litigating against the federal government for the travel mandates. And um, the documents are now available that, um, that people can download. So Liam, I'm not sure if you're able to include a link to where people can actually download those documents. Yes, I will. It's absolutely shocking the things that came out in that. The, the, the information that came out, so the person behind the travel mandates themselves who, who wrote them, um, she's an English uh, literature major, has a team of 20 people, and none of them were scientists or doctors. One of them, I think, had worked at Health Canada, but it was quite a while before, and she had no comment. And when asked, where did you get this information? Because Canadians think it's all about the science, right? We're told every decision is being made based on the science. It turns out no, actually, that's not what happened at all. This came from, she She claimed she couldn't testify or she couldn't say everything due to cabinet confidentiality. And what does that mean? It means it came from that, the highest of the high, right? So 
this is what we need to really do. And this is something that I'm passionate about is Canadians need to wake up and start asking more questions. We need to become far more involved and engaged. And so that goes back to, you know, when Mark, when you asked him what it means to, you know, what is the United States and what does it mean to be a citizen? He could, you know, he, he boom, like that could tell you a Canadian can't do that. And we need to, um, we need to learn a little bit more about citizenry and what our rights are and how government works and what is good governance. And that's something that I'm really passionate about now. Yeah. I, I, and, and um, I, I know that this, uh, this terminology uh, winds up uh, pressing people's buttons a little bit because of people's goal to avoid the charge of conspiracy theory. But uh, anytime decisions are being made uh, that are not transparent, um, if we say that's by definition a secret society, then suddenly what we're saying is by definition we're being governed by secret societies. And and just to just to say that out loud because it's it's true and it's clear it, it, it's almost well it's it's almost unarguable. Uh, these decisions are being made uh, in places where we don't get to see what that conversation is about. Um, so we are now nations ruled by secret societies. Now, can that be undone? You know, do, is the protocol level of governments uh, such that there is a way for citizens to react to that, you know, to that new circumstance? Um, I, th I think in the U.S. the, the question is unanswered. Uh, I, I don't know um, your thoughts about how it is in Canada. Did, did I make that point clear? I I, I I have a, an idea in my mind that I'm trying to work my way through it verbally here. Well, I mean, I guess you're asking, is there hope? Is there a way forward? Is there something that citizens can do well, to there's, change? There's, there's hope one way or another, but uh, <laughs> it, yeah, is, is there hope within the current paradigm? I think so. Uh, I, I think we're not, it's not too late. Uh, I, I think that, um, um, we're in a time right now where um, we're still working uh, as a, as grassroots, uh, but but we're gaining a lot of traction. And I'm seeing the shift already in the narrative, especially in the last, I would say, month, last two months even. Uh, we're seeing rulings that are going in, in our favor in, in many different ways, whether it's uh, um, in Italy. Um, I can't remember if it was that I just read it recently or if it, it was reported, you know, perhaps back in April or so, where a, a judge came out and said, you can't mandate vaccines because we know that there is risk involved. And because there is risk, what are you going to say that a certain amount of the population is expendable for the safety and wellness of another portion of the population? Who's who's to decide that? So there was that decision, which I, I think was huge. That was at the Supreme Court in Italy. Um, we're starting to see things here in Canada as well, shifts in things uh, in, in BC. And Liam, you can probably explain better because, you know, living in BC, you have a better understanding. But like Bonnie Henry out there, she thought maybe she had it smooth sailing that she could just, you know, do what she wanted to do. But the the judge there is saying, no, we're we're, he just uh, recently gave class standing um, status, wasn't it, to to the litigants in that case. And basically that case is about our, our public health um, officials above the law. So 
Um, there is that. I've also seen um, in just in the last week, um, two uh, workers um, safety um, board decisions um, where the, um, the employers have been found um, liable for forcing vaccination. And they're, so these employees' injuries have been uh, recognized as being uh, injuries that were mandated by the employer and therefore they need to pay them out for that. So, you know, up until now, a lot of employers basically, um, they did the dirty work for government. You know, governments didn't completely mandate things, um, it, uh, you know, but they made it seem like they were. So here in Ontario, the, um, the provincial government didn't mandate vaccines they told everybody they had to have a vaccine policy and then employers across the board or mostly um, told their, their employees, oh, well, you have to have a, a vaccine. We're mandating it. But that wasn't what they were what they were told they had to do. But the government was kind of, I think, a, a little bit involved in that by not providing the clarity around that. And I uh, think what happened as well is a lot of middle management who didn't get the message directly from government. They got it from their superiors. I believe mm -hmm. there truly was a widespread belief that these mandates were in effect and were enforceable. Yes. And yeah. we, we heard from at least, uh, well, from a, from too many people who, who have been victims of, of injury or at, at the best have lost their jobs, who uh, one in particular explained how her employer in Ontario took her step by step and said, okay, you ready to get the shot yet? She said, no. They said, okay, well, you're going to be fired. She said, okay. Then they said, okay, but you know, if you're fired, you're not going to qualify for employment insurance because this is a mandate. Okay, so this is being held over the heads of people based on something that doesn't even exist in that context. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah there was and one I think municipal councillor who said he also owns his own uh, business. And he said, I can't remember how many it was in a very short period of time. There were, like he said, every day they would change, you know, different edicts would come down. And he said, we never knew as a, as a business employer what we could and couldn't do. So how, how were people to know? <laughs> you know it was, Precisely. Yeah. Now, I think it would be very effective or very beneficial to, to leave people with a, a set of instructions, if at all possible, just basic things they can do. And I'll start by, by sharing a bit of my experience. I, I hate to say I've, I've encountered a number of very upsetting situations in my just trying to live my life over the last two years. And through the process of experiencing these, these instances of discrimination or um, other problematic actions, I've come to learn about certain things. For example, our rights in terms of privacy, um, the protection of our of our confidential information, how various organizations are legally allowed and not allowed to collect and then disseminate it, um, as well as learning that we even have a constitution and a charter of rights and freedoms. And as such, um, when those are violated, there are re there's recourse that can be taken that does not require hiring a big fancy lawyer and going to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, I myself, I've filed complaints with my provincial uh, privacy, uh, the office of the provincial privacy officer here for a situation I encountered. I also have a federal human rights complaint against a government agency, which I won't go into in any more detail. But two things. First, I want people to be aware that you don't hear about 
all of the ways in which justice is being drawn out or being uh, practiced in that people are going through, I think, cases like mine where there's no media attention, but people have stepped up and said, no, 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 no. That's not how that works. And the process goes on. You just don't hear about it in the newspaper. So, Sonia, can you give an overview? What are the things that everyday citizens who are not lawyers necessarily, who are not scientists necessarily, um, who are not experts on any particular relevant topic here, what can they do when they're faced with a situation where either they or someone they know uh, or someone that they witness uh, uh, being discriminated against or in some way having these issues pushed in their face in a way that how can they address it? What are the steps they can take? I think that people really need to look at engaging their local politicians. Uh, they're, you're part of their constituency. They're obligated to meet with you. And uh, I really always encourage a face-to-face -face, uh, meeting. So just taking it back to when we were fighting that ethanol plant, you know, over 15 years ago, um, we developed a very co coherent document. I had, you know, people that were chemical engineers and firefighters that all had concerns. And so we put them all into a, a document with a one page overview and then each section one page. And then we met one on one our group with all of the municipal councillors. And at the time I met one on one with my municipal councillor. We went, you know, for coffee at the local coffee shop. And when he took that document and I went through and explained it to him, he went, I'm so glad that I've I've done this with you. I thought you guys were a bunch of crackpots, you know, and now I'm realizing, wow, this is really well put together. It's very educational. You guys know your stuff and you've helped arm me so that we can take this information to that company and, you know, really scrutinize what they're doing. And so I encourage people to do the same thing. Find really good resources. The Canadian COVID Care Alliance, there you go. I'm glad you put that up. Uh, have developed many different documents, um, tools that you can utilize to, to take. Um, you know, you might want to send a copy of something ahead of time or bring it, print it off and bring it in person. Now, how do you do that? People say, oh, you know, they'll never want to meet with me or I can't get through. And this was actually the biggest message that we got from almost every single person that testified. And we had almost 60 people that testified at our um, hearing. And almost every one of them said, nobody's listening. I can't get anybody to listen to me. And I mean, we had um, one, one uh, counselor, um, sorry, a, a provincial uh, legislative assembly counselor from Saskatchewan, who said she kept her office open through the entire pandemic and no other leaders in Alberta did. She had people from other constituencies coming to her because she was the only one that was listening and doing things. But I encourage you, go to your local office, walk in in person. If your politician isn't there at that point in time, that's okay. Ask their administrative staff to book an appointment. <coughs> Pardon me. Whether it's in person or a virtual appointment, politicians respond to people. They respond to faces. So make sure you get in front of them. Pardon me. They need to hear your voice. They're not, um, 
they're they're not hearing from enough people and the only way they ever will is with that face to face if we get hundreds of people showing up at all of these constituency offices across the country they can't ignore us that's wonderful well matthew is there anything else you wanted to cover with sonia before we wrap up we could go on for hours, obviously. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, 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 I just want to repeat that uh, I, I've been delighted to meet everyone I've met. Uh, uh, well, you, Sonia, and everyone I've met at the CCCA. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it has seems like an organization that exudes competence. Um, and uh, you know, like hearing you explain, you know, um, these are the things you can do. They're a little bit different in the United States. The rules are a little bit different, and uh, you know, there's nobody who. Um, must hear you out uh, aside from court action. Um, but, uh, you know, to for people to know the things that can be done, uh, you know, puts people in the driver's seat as to a next step that they can take, whether or not there are steps to take after that. And, uh, and that's important. Um, that's a way that uh, people who feel disconnected can connect uh, with action, which is, I think, part of what needs to take place at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if your audience members do only one thing, and only this one thing, it's that they need to go today, if not today, tomorrow, walk into your local constituency office and do it at every level. You have a, a municipal, you have a provincial or, or um, you know, in, in your case, Matthew, there's the state level, and then, you know, your federal level book an appointment with all of those different levels of government they need to hear from you and and you have to tell them everything that's going on they need to know if you lost your job because of this what kind of economic impact it's been because they can't say they're unaware if you're walking in to their office and if you've got other friends that feel the same way as you take them all along I'll just say last time uh, friends of ours went to go sit down with Prime Minister Trudeau, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> but there's hope. Um, Sonia, it, it, did you want to talk about wh where should people go um, to uh, to engage with the work you've been doing? We have the CanadianCovidCareAlliance.org. Um, now, did you want to speak of there's a new venture, if I'm not mistaken, you sent a logo that give, tells me that we have permission to discuss this new institute. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's so new that right now all we have is the logo. We're still working on the website and all the details, but it's uh, it's called the Institute for Freedom and Justice. Uh, that The website, so don't go right now. You won't find anything there, but hopefully in the next week or so, you'll start to be finding more things there. And it's freedomandjustice.ca. And um, basically uh, the... The whole purpose behind that is to, again, get more people educated uh, and aware of, of how things work, how things should work. What does good governance look like? We want to um, create a better understanding of the spirit and philosophy of the Constitution and make people aware of not just their rights, but also their obligations as citizens. And um, we also wanted to do things that can help, uh, especially um, 
we're, we're really especially trying to reach out to our youth, that up and coming generation and, and create an awareness amongst them about the importance of uh, civil involvement and, and, and having a better understanding of how government works and how they can become involved in the process. And um, for those that are interested in um, political leadership roles, we, we wanted to try to create some sort of a mentorship program for them too. So looking at providing the proper tools that they would need to, to govern, what does good governance look like, political systems, and, and how can um, we make sure that they're being connected with people that will help guide them to become better leaders in the future. So that's uh, what that institute is all about. Brand new, huge educational component, but we also want to uh, help with people that are having constitutional challenges. And um, so um, looking to potentially fund uh, some constitutional litigation in the future as well. That's fantastic. Well, we look forward to sharing more details on the Institute uh, as it launches officially. Sonia, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I'm very fortunate that I get to have a number of them with you per month. Um, So thank you for now bringing that to Matthew and our wider audience. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Stick around. We'll say our proper goodbye after. Um, Matthew, uh, another great talk. I know I say it every week. I'm a broken record, but Sonia and Mark, what excellent uh, citizen leaders. Yeah. And not everybody has to take the level of leadership that they do. There are a lot of things that everybody can do, right? Um, you know, uh, Mark obviously, uh, stepped forward within his position, um, and, and not everyone in his position did, uh, but it's clear that he has support from the people around him. And, uh, having worked with Mark personally, um, you know, I can tell you, uh, you know, nobody has anything but a good thing to say about him. And, uh, and Sonia obviously has, uh, you know, very good control over her domain. She, she has, you know, uh, like you said, she, she was in a number of, uh, positions, but, uh, it, you know, it, it, I, I just continue to be impressed with the CCCA, you know, uh, uh, everyone seems to be, you know, well-versed in the thing that they're doing. And, you know, Sonia just immediately has, you know, 10 things to rattle off as far as, you know, what can be done. And she could coach a lot of citizens, right? Um, She's somebody um, who could sit down and have coffee with, uh, with the politicians, or she can sit down and have coffee with, with the uh, 23 year olds who might never have known that they could sit down or, or, you know, had the, the courage yet to, to do so. Um, yep. and, and that's great. And that's what it takes for uh, society to run. I completely agree. Well, let's wrap up today's show. I just wanted to run through very quickly a couple of ways that you can support Rounding the Earth. Um, it, it began, of course, as a, uh, a, a sub stack and you can go become a paid subscriber the Rounding the Earth newsletter. If you're currently a free subscriber, consider upgrading to paid. There's some wonderful uh, members-only content that goes in there that I'm not even allowed to talk about, but it's awesome. Um, The second thing you can do is uh, you can get a Rumble rant uh, when we're doing these live streams. On the right side there, they are essentially sponsored comments. They're a way to feature whatever it is you want to say. And of course, uh, we we get to uh, fund the show that way. Um, Also, we're excited to say we're now on Rockfin, and today was the first time instead of streaming on Odyssey, we switched over to Rockfin, and uh, it has a wonderful, easy five dollar tip button um, if you feel so inclined. Um, but most importantly, thank you all for listening. Um, this is a lot of fun for Matthew and I to do. 
um, and we're we're learning a lot. And uh, thank you to those who are engaging every week. Um, thank you to those of you who are engaging in the comments as well. Uh, as you see, we're going to try to keep bringing in the audience to the discussion because that's sort of the point. Is to yeah, there are some good the comments today. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I'm starting to see uh, people uh, tell me things. You know, uh, you and I, while we're asking these questions and talking with our guests, we're learning a lot, but also we're in certain mind frames, and it's it's actually really good to see um, other people remind us of other uh, aspects of what's going on or, or just or other ways to think about it, other mindsets. Um, so that's great. We appreciate it. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's wrap up this most recent round table. Thank you all so much for watching and we will see you again on Friday for our weekly news roundup. And next week we'll bring you yet another wonderful round table discussion. And I hope you have a wonderful week guys. We'll see you later.